James 4, 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What's your life? You are mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your ignorance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is God's word. You may sit down. Let's ask for his help in understanding this. Lord God, you told us through your servant David in Psalm 19 that when you reveal our sin to us, you point us to yourself and your goodness and your holiness. And so we ask that you do that this morning. Lord, give us hearts this morning that hear your word and that are willing to have it applied to our own lives. Not to say this is not about me, but to say this is about me and I repent and turn to Christ. So help us to do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's not very often that I get to tell you a story. But on this day, September 10th, today's September 10th, so on September 10th, in 1855, James Buddington, the captain of the American whaling ship, the George Henry, found an abandoned ship drifting off of Cape Washington of Baffin Island in the far north Atlantic. The ship that he found was outfitted for polar exploration. It had a, a thick hole an interior heater. She even had a polar bear as her figurehead. There was no telling the ship had been, no telling for how long the ship had been drifting, but it was completely abandoned. And here's the account of Captain Buddington's discovery. Finally, stealing over the side, they found everything stowed away in proper order for desertion. Spars hauled up to one side and bound, boats piled together and hatches closed. Everything wore the silence of the tomb. Finally, reaching the cabin door, they broke in and found their way in the darkness to the table. On it, they accidentally turned on a box of Lucifer matches. In a moment, one was ignited. The glowing light revealed a candle. It was lit, and before the astonished gaze of these men exposed a scene that appeared to be rather one of enchantment than reality. Upon a massive table was a metal teapot, glistening as if new, also a large family Bible, together with glasses and decanters filled with choice liquors. Nearby was the captain's chair, a piece of massive furniture over which had been thrown, as if to protect a seat from vulgar occupation, the royal flag of Great Britain. Well, as it happens, this lost and found ship, the HMS Resolute, had originally set sail from England in 1852 in search of two missing ships near the Northwest Passage west of Greenland. The Resolute had become frozen in ice 
in August of 1853 and stayed that way all the way through the winter and spring of 1854 when the captain gave up. He gave up on the prospect of a thaw and his crew abandoned the Resolute and returned home by way of a steamship that had come to rescue them. Well, following the maritime rule of finders keepers, Captain Buddington split his crew up. This was the captain who found the ship. He split his crew up and sailed the drifting Resolute back to Connecticut. The U.S. government purchased it from him for $40,000 and promptly returned it to England the following year as a gesture of goodwill and national courtesy. In 1879, the ship was retired and dismantled and recycled. Well, it gets better. From the salvaged lumber, the British government had three desks built by a cabinet maker in the Chatham shipyard. One of those desks was given to President Rutherford B. Hayes in 1880 as a thank you for the returned ship. That desk now sits in the Oval Office of the White House, and it goes by the name the Resolute Desk. Where in the world is he going with this? I'm glad you asked. Suppose you were to visit the White House, and in your tour, you snuck away from the guide, got past the Secret Service, and sat down behind that desk, the Resolute Desk. You propped your feet up, and you began to issue orders to White House staff. You called up cabinet members and gave them directives, and then you began scheduling appointments with various heads of state. It wouldn't be hard, would it? you just mumble and sound confused. They'd listen to you. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> well, we have a word for this behavior in English. We would call this presumptuousness, wouldn't we? It would be presumptuous and even criminally insurgent to assume the place and the authority of president. And we understand this. We understand that the office of the president carries with it a, a prestige and an honor and an authority that does not belong to the rest of us. A good citizen of the United States knows his or her place and does not attempt to subvert the order that keeps the country running. We get that, but we, we understand that because it's physical, it's tangible, we can see it, but we're less aware, far less aware of the ways in which we are presumptuous when it comes to God. James's aim this morning in this passage is to show us three ways that we put on airs and subvert God's authority in his majesty. The first is in the way that we speak evil of others. We see this in verses 11 and 12. The second is in the way that we talk about the future. And we see this is in verses 13 through 17. And the third way, the third way that we are presumptuous is in the way that we think about wealth and the return of Christ. And we'll see this in verses, the first six verses of chapter 5. So those three parts are three Sins of presumptuousness, and they are common. They're common amongst Christians because all three of these sins are culturally acceptable. This was true in the day that James wrote this, and it's true today. But just because a sin is acceptable to our culture at large does not mean that we should tolerate it, tolerate it in our hearts or in our church. So let's take some time and examine these, these three sins more closely so that we might see them in our lives and repent and turn to Christ. The first one is this, speaking evil against others. We see this in verses 11 and 12. And at first glance, if you're just skimming the text, if you're just reading through James, you might think James is just following up from verse 1 of last week, right? So if, if you look at it, Chapter 4, verse 1, James is addressing interpersonal conflict. And if you look at verse 11, it, it seems to be a continuation of that. Something along the lines of fights and quarrels are bad. We saw that in verse 1. So, verse 11, stop talking evil against one another. In fact, next week in, in 5, 9, he's going to say something similar. Stop grumbling against one another. 
But James, starting in chapter 2 and all the way through chapter 5, is not just a series of commands to stop doing stuff like that. It's not what James is doing. The argument that James is making is that our conflicts arise out of hearts that are not submissive to God through Christ. That's the greater issue. And so the solution isn't just to stop. The solution is to be humbled. We saw that in verses 7 through 10 last week. Remember when when he was teaching us, he said, be humbled. And then he said, do that by being subjected to King Jesus. Oppose the devil in his domain. Draw near to God through Christ's atoning work. And repent of our love affair with the world. That were the, those were the, the steps towards humility. So in verse 11 then of, of this morning's text, James is moving from that instruction about humility to these three common ways that we're presumptuous and proud. Just in case we begin to think that verses 7 through 10 last week don't apply to us. Just in case we think, oh, we don't need to be more humble. We're good. He says, no, 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 no. You need to see this. You do need to be humbled. And he gives us these three ways that we commonly elevate ourselves rather than humbling ourselves before Christ. The first of these three ways is, as we saw, the way in which we talk to one another. The way that we talk about, the ways that we talk about one another. It says in verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Now, what's he saying? Is James saying here we're never to say anything bad about anyone ever? What does it mean to speak evil against one another? Well, a very wooden translation of the original language would just say speaking against. Do not speak against. But James is speaking against people in this passage, isn't he? And Jesus speaks against his disciples. He speaks against the scribes and Pharisees. Peter, Paul, and John all speak against Christians that are in error. Certainly there are occasions when we have to say something about someone or to someone, and it's negative. So what is this rebuke about then? Well, elsewhere in the Bible, this same word that is translated to speak evil against is used to describe the way in which Israel spoke against God and Moses. So back in the Old Testament, in the Exodus and in Numbers, God brought Israel out of Egypt through Moses. The people arrived in the wilderness, and the Bible says they spoke against them, saying, why have you brought us here? What was happening there is the people were questioning the motives of God and Moses, accusing God and Moses of having ill will towards them. They said, they said that Moses had brought them out in the wilderness to die. You remember that? That was speaking evil. That was speaking against false accusations against one with a, a just authority. In Psalm 105, we see a very similar idea. Speaking against in Psalm 105 is translated as slandering the neighbor, slandering your neighbor. Peter uses this same phrase, speaking against, in the sense of bringing false accusations. So in 1 Peter 2.12, he says to the church, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, when they speak evil against you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter's saying those outside the church are going to accuse the church of evil. That's what the world does. Don't let what they say be true. Another example of this sort of speaking against is what you find in the book of Romans. So in the Roman church, there were were people that had some sort of dispute. Some were questioning the faith of other people in the church because of their personal convictions about Sabbath-keeping and festivals and drinking wine and eating meat and so forth. They were speaking against the faith of others because of those convictions. Now, all of that together, from Exodus all the way to Romans, all of that together gives us a sense of what James is getting at here. James is rebuking speech by which we question the consciences of other people and accuse them of being wrong in the sight of God. So so built into this idea is 
is, uh, is reading someone else's motives or, or reading their minds or making judgments about what's going on in their hearts. And, and particularly on issues that are not overt sin. So let me, let me give you an example. And I'm going to intentionally choose something here that's an issue of conscience. Something that is not prohibited or commanded in Scripture. So suppose one of our church members goes to a birthday party of their niece. And this niece has been deceived by the world and thinks she's a boy. The parents of this girl aren't Christians, and they're openly affirming and encouraging their daughter in her delusion. To speak evil against this church member would be to then say, well, obviously, because he's going to the party, he supports transgenderism. Now remember, remember in this scenario, you haven't talked to the church member. You don't know their heart. You don't know their motives for going to the birthday party. Rather than seeking understanding, we're jumping to the conclusion that the only possible motive that they must have would come from affirmation of sin. Therefore, they are also sinning. But maybe... Maybe this church member wants to maintain a relationship with this niece because they're the only Christian influence in her life. Maybe this this member grieves for what the parents are doing to their child and he's seeking opportunities to influence them and, and lovingly show them the damage that she's doing or that they're doing. Speaking against the church member is assuming the worst in your heart and then communicating that judgment that you've made to someone else. And here's what James says is happening when we do that. Look at this next part in verse 11. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. It is judging because it's a pronouncement of judgment against the motives of the heart. It's it's the kind of judgment that says about a brother in Christ, I know what's in your heart. And I know that you are living in intentional disobedience to God and I condemn you for it. But why does James then say, we understand that that's judging, but why why does he then say when we do this, we speak evil against the law? What does that mean? And, And we judge the law. You see that in verse 11? The law that he's speaking of here... The, the, the context that we have in James, the last time he mentioned the law here, is the royal law that we saw in chapter 2, the law of love. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. So, so here's what he's saying. He's saying making these mind-reading, heart-reading, motive-reading judgments against our brothers and sisters in Christ is a violation of that law of love. It's a violation because we are applying a standard of judgment to someone else that we would not want to apply to us. I would not want you to try to read my heart motives without talking to me. Right? You don't want that either. So, 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 so that's, that's the first reason why this is a violation of, of that, that royal law. Secondly, it's, it's not loving. Paul says in that famous love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, which defines for us what love within the church is, brotherly love is, he says there, 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And what that means is this, love does not assume that our brother or sister has ill motives when they make a decision that comes from their conscience. Rather, love assumes that their motives are pure until proven otherwise. Love assumes that the brother in Christ is going to that birthday party to be a light in the darkness towards his family. When we assume evil motives, when when we make these mind-reading, heart-reading, motive-reading types of judgments against our brothers and sisters, we are breaking the law of love, and we are setting up a standard of righteousness, our standard of righteousness, as the standard of righteousness, a standard that is different than God's standard. That's why James says we're speaking evil against the law, and we're judging the law. 
The law, the royal law written on our hearts by the Spirit says we are to love our brother and and Christ is the standard of righteousness. But when we judge our brother on issues of conscience, we're saying the law is wrong. We don't have to love our brother and I am the standard of righteousness. You see? You see the problem? That's why James says at the end of verse 11, but if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but the judge. When we set up our own standard of righteousness and judge people according to our standard, we are making ourselves out to be God. As the all-seeing, all-knowing judge who presides over the hearts of man. And now we're getting into very dangerous territory, aren't we? Extremely dangerous. This is what we're getting into. Presumptuousness. Sounds like a funny word. But it means to to set yourself up as something that you're not. You're presuming to be the judge. You're presuming to be God. We're presuming we can see into hearts. We're presuming we can read minds. We're presuming a place in the order of all things that only God holds. Only an all-knowing, all-seeing God can make these types of judgments. And we're saying, yeah, that's me. Look at verse 12. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He's who, who, he, yeah. He who is able to save and destroy. Who are you <laughs> to judge your neighbor? Brothers and sisters, there's only one God. Father, Son, and Spirit. There is only one being who has the authority to make eternal judgments. And it's not you. And it's not me. And the good news is, he is not only a judge and lawgiver, but God through Christ is also the one who saves. Do you see that? He who is able to save and destroy. He is not tainted by sin. So his motives in judging us are pure. We can trust him. He has no illusions or delusions of self-righteousness. He is righteousness. He's wise and knowing and he sees into the hearts. He made our hearts. On the day of judgment, all of our secret motives will be exposed by him, and he will do that without our help. He does not need our little little lights that we have on our phones to help him see into the dark crevices of other people's hearts. He is light. His light is brighter than the sun. God is God. God will judge justly. Let God be God. Trust God to do his work. We have our own assignments from him. Our assignment is not to preside as judge over our brothers and sisters, but to walk alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ. Alongside means when your brother is wrestling over an issue of conscience, like whether or not they should have gone to that party or or how they should spend their money or what to do about some job situation. We don't assume the worst about what they're thinking. We don't assume that their desire is for evil. Rather, we ask them. It's not that hard. Ask them. Ask them what they're thinking. What's going on in your heart? Rather than assuming the worst, we go to them with a posture of love and humility and, and most of all, mercy, which is the same posture that Christ came to earth to save us with. We go to our brother to speak to them, to listen to them, to bring the word of God to them in counsel. And listen, if you are on the receiving end of this, you also need to assume the best motives of the person who's confronting you. Even if your fellow church member comes to you bumbling and and fumbling, and your your guard goes up because you, you question them, you think their motives might be impure, show them mercy until proven otherwise. Assume, assume that they're coming to you in love and humility, and don't get defensive. This will be awkward. All of this is awkward. It doesn't feel natural, does it? What feels natural? 
It feels natural to just assume the bad motives, go to someone else, and chat about it. But the Spirit is leading to you, to you and me towards something that is not natural. He, he's, the Spirit's way, the way of wisdom, humbles us by putting us beneath the cross of Christ as sinners altogether, all of us in need of the mercy of Christ. And at the same time, the Spirit exalts us by putting us in Christ before the throne of God. And that alone is where our satisfaction should be. Not in ourselves. Not in comparing ourselves to others. Seeing Christ on the cross and on the throne, and that's it. All of us are equal underneath those. So this first Error of presumptuousness has to do with putting ourselves in God's place as lawgiver and judge. And you can kind of get a sense now the danger of it. And if you committed this sin this week, repent, receive the mercy that God gives through Christ, and prepare your heart to hear another sin of presumptuousness. Because the second error of presumptuous is when we put ourselves in God's place as the sovereign over life. So here's part two, presumptuous plans. One of the, um, one of the joys of being a pastor is that the Spirit applies the text that I'm studying to my own life every day. You would think that this would make me sanctified. You would think that placing myself under the Word of God to know and grow in the Word of God day in and day out would mean that I would have a much easier time than the rest of you submitting myself to Christ. If you think that, you're wrong. Sometimes I think Christ only called me into ministry because I have a greater need for more punches in the nose to humble me and prepare me for heaven. So this week... As I'm reading and studying and writing a sermon about presumptuousness, uh, and usually you should know, uh, my, my most focused writing time, my, my, I get in the zone on Saturday. I write the most on Saturday. So last night, I had written a lot. I was pretty much done with the sermon. Um, and I presumed that it was saved because it had been auto-saving throughout the day. I presumed, based on past experience, that I would wake up in the morning and all of my work from Saturday would still be there ready for Sunday and the, the edits that I normally make on Sunday morning to make the sermon shorter for you. But in the providence of God, when I got up this morning, every word that I had written yesterday was gone. All I had was this rough outline that was from Friday and some poorly written notes. And the irony of it is God showed me I had a presumptuous attitude while writing a sermon against presumptuousness. You have here in verse 13 a scenario where a, a merchant or a businessman of some sort makes plans to go to another town, spend a year there, make a profit. See that in 4.13. And this would have been common. What James is describing here would have been very common in that day. Think about it. Mobility was not as easy as it is today. So we can't just get on an airplane, fly to Nashville, do business in Nashville, and turn around and come back. If you're taking the donkey all the way there, you're going to stay there for a little while. It makes sense to spend a lot of time there, work there until the work runs out, and then move on to the next town or return to your hometown. James's dad did this. Right When he was first married, Joseph was from Nazareth, but moved to Bethlehem, ended up staying there for at least a couple years before being forced to leave. So James is not preaching against this practice of doing business in various towns. And he's not preaching against making plans. He's not, making, he's not preaching against doing business, or, and he's not even rebuking the idea of making a profit. What he's rebuking is the heart attitude behind this example, the, the, the self-confidence, the, the arrogance. I will spend a year there. I will make a profit there. My sermon will be there in the morning when I wake up. How do you know what's coming in 365 days? 
when you don't know what's coming tomorrow? That's his question. Look at verse 14. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. What's your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. We're, we're, we're familiar with the mist that he's talking about, right? We live next to the coast. It's that, that wispy moisture that blows in along the coast and creeps into the valleys during summer mornings. The stuff that's usually gone by 9 a.m. on a hot day. James says, yeah, you think, you big, mighty cumulonimbus, you're going to come storming in off the sea, and you're going to bring the thunder and the rain all the way from here to Borrego Springs. No, you, you're just a mist. As soon as that sun comes up over the mountains, you're gone. You're forgotten. Like you were never there to begin with. That's the reality of your life. That's the reality of my life. It's humbling, isn't it? That's the point. It's good to be humbled. We need to be humbled. Our entire life is but a breath, a mist, like we see elsewhere in scriptures, like the flowers of the grass, here today, dried up by afternoon, gone tomorrow. And our entire lives are subject, not to ourselves or our whims, but to God, our maker. Our plans for next year are subject to God. Our plans for tomorrow are subject to God. Our plans for lunch today are subject to God. Brother, your next heartbeat is subject to God. We have had, in this section right over here, it's younger now than it used to be, but we have had strokes over here and heart attacks over here during worship. You're not guaranteed your next breath. Nothing is guaranteed you. So who, who are you? Who am I to arrogantly say what will happen today or tomorrow or a year from now? Instead, James says, look at verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So, so first of all, we are to understand deeply that our life is in God's hands. We kind of skip over that we will live part. If the Lord wills, we will live. We, well, we just, we'll get to the next part. No, no, no. Your life is in God's hands. That's what fear of the Lord is. It is knowing that he is sovereign over every heartbeat, every breath you take. If the Lord wills it, you will live. He's our creator and our sustainer, as we sang this morning. And our life is subject to his will. He holds this roof up. He holds the, every wall you walk beside, he holds that up. He's our creator and our sustainer, and our lives are subject to him. Secondly, our plans are also in his hands. Now, it's not wrong to make plans. It's good to make plans. It is a, when you make plans, you are recognizing God has you here for a purpose and so you're going to glorify him with the life that he's given you and the gifts and the circumstances that he's put you in. And you've got to make plans in order to do that. Some of you with the, okay, sirrah, sirrah, you know, whatever God wills, that's not what he's talking about here. This is make plans. Make plans to provide for yourself and for your family. Make plans to be generous with what he gives you. If you're not planning, you're never going to be generous. But subject your plans to the Lord. He is sovereign over your life. He is sovereign over your work. He's sovereign over your education. He's sovereign over your retirement. All of it. Getting, getting back to what we saw last week, it's not the case. I could say this every week. It's not the case that over here, behind door number one, is the devil and his domain. And that's where witchcraft and sorcery and all that stuff is. And then over here on the right, you have God in heaven and sometimes church. And then in the middle, in this neutral ter 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 territory, you have your work and your family and your friends and your entertainment and everything that you do in the world that isn't sin. That's not it. That's an unbiblical worldview. The biblical worldview is that there is the domain of darkness ruled by Satan, and there is the kingdom of the beloved Son ruled by Christ. And the kingdom of Christ is breaking into the world and will one day, when all of Christ's enemies have been placed under his feet, on that day, Christ will return as judge. As it is now, because you've been called into Christ's kingdom, if you're a Christian, you live in his kingdom. 
There's no neutral territory. You're in his kingdom, and that's a good thing. It is infinitely better to be ruled over by Christ than to be ruled over by Satan's sin and death. He is a, Jesus is a much better king than you. In his kingdom, there is peace and righteousness and eternal life. So, so I'm not calling upon you to lament of the joy of being in the presence of Christ in his kingdom. But I am calling upon you to know this. All of your life is subject to him. All of it. Your health, your family, if you're single, your singleness, your work, your entertainment, your children, your rising in the morning, your sleep at night, even what you eat and drink and have snacks. Even the meals you don't eat and drink when you fast. All of it is subject to Christ. There's nothing that you can keep from him. Nothing that you can say, this part of my life is none of Jesus' business. Because this is my dealings with the world in this imaginary neutral territory. Jesus gets my time when I'm at church. The rest of it's all mine. And I promise I won't wander over there into Satan's territory. You can't think like that. Because you are his, you've been bought with the price, your whole life belongs to him. All of it. All of it. When we say at any point, yes, my eternity belongs to Christ, but my business and my day-to-day life belongs to me, that's presumptuousness. Look at verse 16. He says, that is boasting and arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. And then he gives us this follow-up verse in uh, verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do, and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now, that sounds a little bit puzzling. What is he talking about? That sounds mysterious. This is all he means. The good, the right thing to do, is to confess our dependence upon God and his will in everything. All of it. That's the right thing. Anything less is presumptuousness. The problem with these first two sins of presumptuousness, making ourselves out to be sovereign over other people's hearts and making ourselves out to be sovereign over our own lives, the problem with this, the reason we don't see it, is because they're such common sins. We don't, we don't see the harm. Right? Nobody gets seriously hurt if I talk about someone else. Like They're never going to hear about it. It's fine. It's normal. Everyone does it. Nobody gets hurt when I make plans for next year. It's, this is normal. It's the way that we are, right? But the problem is that these common sins create in us a callousness, a resistance to Christ the King. And if we continue in these sins without repentance, without being subjected to Christ without humbling ourselves before Christ, what happens is we end up under the judgment that we see in the first few verses of chapter 5, and it's terrifying. So look at this. This is section 3 now, trusting in wealth in the last days. Look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 3 with me. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you, This sounds just like an omen, doesn't it? Sounds like a woe from the Old Testament. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. You can almost imagine a, a blind prophet pronouncing this judgment over the church. This is a judgment day scenario. That's what James is giving us. It's almost like James has been teaching and he's using his normal voice, and then he's instructing, and then suddenly he's in this this trance, and he's describing this apocalyptic scene in the future that he sees in front of him. It is the day of judgment, and his church, the people he loves, are there under the judgment seat of Jesus. And Jesus asks them, were you trusting in me for the forgiveness of your sins? Were you trusting in me alone for eternal security? Were you trusting in me alone as sovereign Lord and King over your life? Was I your treasure? 
And the church's response is this unintelligible murmur. And Jesus then points to the evidence. He holds up what was treasured. And next to the the worth and the brilliance of the glory of Christ, all of this stuff that he points to, it all looks as it really is. It's worthless. It's dim. It's dingy. Here are the clean, new, expensive, fashionable clothes that you, you trusted in to be seen, to be admired, to feel important. They are moth-eaten rags. You can't wear that to the wedding feast. Here is what you thought was shiny and valuable, gold and silver, wealth that could give you security in the case of disaster, wealth that could buy you food and life and power, wealth that would never lose its value, a hedge against inflation, right? You stored it up. So you'd always have it when you need it, and now look at it. Next to Christ, here is the glory and the brilliance of Christ, and here's your gold and silver. And what does it look like next to him? Rusty, corroded bits of metal. And then he lays in, you have laid up treasure in the last days. What that means is, knowing From God's word, we've been told from Genesis through Revelation, we're in the last days now. And that that tells us, we, we know from God's word, Christ our King is returning as judge. And we stored up treasure assuming he was not returning. And that is the most damning presumption we can make. To not believe Christ is returning as judge. That's faithlessness. It's a failure to recognize that Jesus is the Christ. We confess Jesus is Christ. That means he's returning. That means he's coming as judge. If you say he's not coming as a judge, then you're saying he's not the Christ. And if Jesus is not the Christ, If he's not your Christ, then your possessions will be. And when he returns, you will see they were not worth trusting in. You remember last week in chapter 4 when we saw that if we were pursuing the things of the world, we would justify any means to get there? Do you remember that? That's, that's what causes quarrels and fights. We want something. We, we, we go after it. Someone else is standing in the way. That's on them. They shouldn't have stood in my way. Right, so I'm going to go over them to get my goals. That's what causes quarrels and fights. We see that same concept. James has not forgotten it. We see that here in this passage as well. When our ultimate trust is not in Christ, but is in the things of this world, it's because we don't fear the Lord as Savior and Redeemer and returning judge. But chasing after the things of this world, what do we do? We then justify in our minds cheating people not paying them a fair wage, sliding people to get by. This also, James says, will be uncovered on Judgment Day. Look at verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now, not many of you are in charge of people's wages. Not many of us are probably a few, but all of us understand this principle. The more we pay our employees, the less there is for us, right? The less there is available for us. That's the the simple math. And if we trust in our wealth, if our trust is in our wealth, then we might be deceived into thinking that it is okay to pay our employees less. After all, we deserve it. We worked harder. We're the boss. They don't care as much as we do. They're not invested as much as we are. They might be disloyal. They might be immigrants. They're not as educated as you and me, whatever it is. If you can imagine it, we can rationalize it. We are really good at rationalizing and justifying when it comes to money. 
more for me, less for them. That's if our trust is in wealth. That's the direction our hearts will go. But if our trust is in Christ, if you are subject to Christ, you've submitted yourself to Christ as Lord, and you know that what that means is He's returning, and that when He does, you will receive far more than whatever you could have acquired in this life. Well, then your perspective changes. You are freed to be generous. Now, as far as I know of you, church, for those of you that I know, that are members here, I know that if you were given the opportunity to set someone's wages, you would be generous. I've seen that in you. But I don't want to let you off the hook. Because verse 5 kind of comes in a little closer. Look at verse 5. It says, you've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Now, the day of the Lord, the last days, the day of slaughter, that's what he's talking about here. Christ is returning as judge and you are living in luxury. Luxury and self-indulgence in James's day, might or might not have been culturally acceptable. In our day, these are not vices. In our modern culture, luxury and self-indulgence are virtues. We look up to people who live in luxury. We, live up, we look up to people who live a self-indulgent lifestyle. I'm not saying you do, but our culture at large. Materialism, acquiring stuff, is not just acceptable in our culture, it's what keeps our economy going, right? So if we stop buying stuff at a faster rate than we did the year before, our entire economy slows down into recession and eventually collapses. Therefore, for the good of our country, we are told, it is patriotic to seek luxury and to be self-indulgent and to consume and consume and consume and consume. That's, this is a problem for Christians living in the West, isn't it? Because that's a Western virtue. But for Christians, consumerism is not a Christian virtue. Our king was homeless. He didn't have anything to call his own on this earth. That's our model. Living for self-indulgence and luxury is not the way of Christ. Living with a heavenly-mindedness is. So how do we square that? This is hard. I'm not going to say this is easy. Does this mean we can't have nice stuff? I don't think it means that. What is at stake here is what your heart is set on, what it is treasuring. Is your heart set on acquiring stuff? Is that what you think will make you happy? Let me give you a little test. Does your heart, does your self, your psyche, do you feel a sense of satisfaction when you make a purchase? Like a little, ah, oh, felt good. Probably does a little bit, doesn't it? You, you get that little sense, and, and online shopping makes this even easier, doesn't it? Click satisfaction. Click satisfaction. Buy it now. Ah. It feels good. I did something today. I accomplished something today. I bought something today. I have more baubles now. I have more trinkets now. I have more stuff now. And then, and then when we do that, we seek that sense of satisfaction. We kind of keep seeking it and keep seeking it with no regard to what we're doing or what we're thinking. No regard to where that product is coming from or how the wages of the probably thousand layers of industry between you and the raw material in your purchase. Let me think, let's just think about it this way. If you knew, whenever you were about to buy something, if you knew that members of Del Cerro Baptist Church were somewhere along that supply chain, would that affect how you make that decision? Right, I can buy this for the cheapest possible price here, but fellow church member, 
is in the supply chain on this side, costs a little bit more, what do you do? I think, I think it would affect your decision making. But if you know that your pursuit of self-indulgence was raking over a fellow Christian, right? So you know that whenever you buy, let's just hypothetical, okay? But whenever you buy from Amazon, there, there are churches that get burned, all right? Like I said, totally hypothetical example. But if you knew that, but it was cheaper, what would you do? If you knew that you were raking over a fellow Christian, taking advantage of them, treating them as a means to your ends, James says, if, that's, if, you're, if you're deciding that way, verse 6, you've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. You have this, you have power, you have wealth, you have authority, you can do it, you do it, you've murdered the righteous person. Now, something I believe it more explicit is happening here in James's church, somewhere wherever this is outside of Jerusalem, something that for us, I think this would be unthinkable for most of us, not paying the laborers in the field, profiting off of them. I don't think we would do this. But what I'm trying to get you to do is just think about it. Think about what you're pursuing with your heart. But the other thing I want you to see is all of this started with presumptuousness. James's church that he's writing to here didn't get there out of nowhere. It all started with presumptuousness, setting ourselves up as gods over other people's hearts, over our own lives, and then callously presuming that Christ would not return as judge, so then we're setting up ourselves as gods over other lives as well, determining who is worth what. Do you see where this leads? That's all James is showing us. Where does this lead? Where does a presumptuous heart, where does a presumptuous attitude take us? He is the ghost of Christmas future here, showing us, Scrooges, where our sins will lead, and it's not pretty, is it? Here's the good news, because this all feels rough. The good news is this. Christ is our good king. He is our sovereign king. And he knows that your heart and my heart is not that different from the people who first received this letter. And so now, we are receiving this letter. What is our choice? What do we do? Psalm 19 says, Moreover, by them, by by God's word, your servant is warned. We've been warned. This is what James is doing. He's warning us. This is what's in your heart. What are you going to do? We only have one choice because we have time. We can repent. Today is not judgment day. As far as I I know, if the Lord wills it. (laughs) But today is the day that you've heard God's word. You've seen what's in your heart. And so he's calling you to repent. Repent of presumptuousness. Subject yourself to Christ. He's a good king. He died for you. Let's thank him.